Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nixon, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Kisha Kijano of Label Sessions talks to Yuri Krugman. Yuri is a leader in the realm of human resources, serving as the chief HR officer for several major organizations, currently of HR, talent, and systems. Not to mention a prolific speaker, coach, and writer, penning his most recent book, Be Your Own Commander-in-Chief, in 2021. With all that said, Yuri truly champions the power of HR, proving its value as an asset for bolstering growth in all business sectors. Over to Yuri and Keisha. Wonderful. I guess kind of we'll dive straight in. Uh, maybe to kick us off, could you please share with us kind of how you came to the world of HR? <laughs> No one wakes up one day and says, hey, you know, I want to be the head of HR. Let's let's have this guy's uh, head checked, right? So the way that I ended up in HR is even, even for an HR person is really backwards, um, very unusual, unexpected, etc. I started out way back in college, technically even before college in the world of neuroscience. Uh, my mom is a neuroscientist and uh, from an early age, I was very much kind of like, you know, already in the lab, already around all this stuff. I was, you know, proofreading all my mom's papers and articles and all that. So college, I was uh, studying neuroscience and I was studying anthropology. That was another part. Also, another thing that my mom uh, gave me among the other gifts is an interest for archaeology, anthropology, other cultures, languages, you know, all, all the things connected with this. So... The, the two, anthropology and neuroscience, um, in many ways have informed my worldview and how, how I go about life. But certainly the direction in which um, that foundation has taken me is very, very far and buried. So from there, just to run through this uh, briefly, after college, I went into grad school for neuroscience. Because, you know, being a good immigrant boy, I got to get that grad degree. I twiddled my thumbs, that forbid. So um, within that first year, when I was at NYU, um, 2004 to 2005, it was pretty clear that, okay, I mean, this stuff is really interesting, but grad school is not about, you know, let's go explore 10 different fields and try to connect them. It's kind of like, okay, well, take these courses and pick a topic and stick with it, or let's put on those blinders. And if you're good with blinders, God bless. If not, you shouldn't be in there. So it was clearly not a not a good fit, and then kind of said, "Okay, I think I think it's been nice, but this is not for me." Um, and it was very much neutral. I think uh, the head of the program also felt the same way. So I left, and okay, I still need that grad degree because you know, again, God forbid, I twiddle my thumbs. No, 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 we can't have that. Um, so what's the other option? Well, let's let's send this guy to law school. Ah, of course, you know, I love history and I love. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know, to defend uh, underprivileged people from, you know, problems. Because we, we were those underprivileged people as as immigrants, right? So with that, okay, went into law school. In law school, I worked in all kinds of different internships, everything from personal injury, insurance, defense, litigation. I worked at hedge fund for a summer, right when the economy went to hell. And, um, you know, one of the other things I did just Incidentally, was I worked a week at the New Yorker magazine as a fact checker during law school, and they wrote my first novel as well. So a lot of a lot of very strange things that you know don't seem to make much sense. They do connect eventually. So 
out of law school, you know, the economy is uh, in bad shape. I'm really not keen on becoming a lawyer. So I worked a little bit as a paralegal and I went into finance to pay the bills because I got a quarter billion in law school loans hanging above my hand, you know, directly sorted on that. So uh, what does one do in that situation? Starting a family as well. Um, you know, when I worked in finance as a consultant, compliance risk, terribly boring, not intellectually stimulating stuff. And out of there, after a few years, uh, all this up and down, you know, you get paid a lot, then you get paid nothing, and it's it's this kind of craziness. So I went into uh, tech, basically, a little bit of a bumpy road. I tried to start a company first with a friend who's a tech investor. Um, we tried to build something like Oscar Health, but without without the millions in the bank, did it work? So I went into health tech, and um, basically. I worked in three different companies. I talked my way into one opportunity doing uh, finance and operations off the street with zero experience, which was insanity. I don't recommend that, but it was it was the craziest learning curve ever. Then from there, I went to another one. I did product management, also with zero experience. Burned out. It was it was just too much. Trying trying to do something at that level with with no experience. And I went to a third one where I was the director of special projects. It was basically like. Here's the kitchen sink. Good luck. <laughs> and that's where I started doing HR. So one day, the you know, the CEO of the company, uh, college, is like, hey, listen, we need to hire you know a chief marketing officer, a few other people. Can you can you just go find people? Like, well, I never did that before, but hey, what the hell? It's a startup, so I can go on my LinkedIn and uh, find a few really interesting people on my network, Fortune 500, Groupon, whatever. So we hired this CEO from Groupon. And I was like, huh, that's kind of cool. I guess I could do this stuff. I mean, it's, I don't really want to be a recruiter, but what the hell, you know, HR business partner, why not? So that, that's how I got my start in HR. But I, I, you know, it wasn't something like, oh yeah, let's do this. You know, let's, let's, you know, let's go into HR. And there I started my own executive coaching company, Master Talk Consulting. I kind of noticed this, look, if I'm getting all these crazy opportunities, more or less by retelling my story in, in a different way for a different audience, why not help other people do the same? And because so many people reach a point where, okay, they've worked, uh, you know, X number of years in this industry or, you know, so many of this company and they hit a block. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is, but this job it depresses me. It, it drains my energy. I don't know what to do from here, but I know I can't stay here. So I reached that at least five times, right? Because I have to change careers and I'm, I'm living with this massive debt, starting a family, trying to figure myself out. As a, as a fully functional adult with a law degree living in New York with zero life skills to start, imagine. Bad news. So basically in doing all that coaching, you know, career coaching is, is a big thing. That was kind of my bread and butter. But I also saw after having built and or helped build several startups that look, Entrepreneurs always have the same problem. If they're brilliant and successful and they get product market fit, they can raise money, this is fantastic. But the problem is usually people. People do not follow a formula. People are not easy to read. They're not easy to activate or motivate or incentivize. And for whatever reason, you know, God gave me this gift to be able to read people, understand them, and direct them in, in the right way. After the experience of working in business and understanding how things really work, I kind of made the connection between the two. And 
you know, maybe HR is a four-letter word to most people. It's unfortunate, you know, there are all sorts of forces responsible for that, the office and, and other pop culture uh, references. But a lot of it, I think, unfortunately, is deserved, right? Because a lot of HR people don't really think about business or they don't have the acumen. You know, there's all all sorts of reasons why HR is not is sort of seen as a back office thing. Now we, of course, have this tech situation where, okay, you know, rah, 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 let's get people the best benefits, motivate them, incentivize them, coach them, all that stuff. So a lot of buzzwords, a lot of, you know, bright lights, a lot of hand-waving, but most companies still fundamentally have no bloody clue what they're doing. Like, well, you're HR, figure it out. No tools, no coaching, nothing. So usually that's that's where I've come in because I've, I've seen through harsh experience, what it's like to have horrible HR, what it's like to have, you know, have functioning HR or the four letter word all the way. Right. Um, so for me, that became a mission, not because I want to be an HR person. And this is, you know, for the rest of my life, like some kind of, you know, a sign that I wear like scarlet letter, but because HR, I believe is an undervalued property, massively undervalued. And what I mean by that, it's a position that doesn't have much of a voice. There's no budget. Traditionally, it's staffed by women and people of color, people that are not that are not the loudest at the table. They don't even often have a seat at the table, proverbially, right? And for all of those different reasons, HR is is this kind of vicious cycle. So for me, it's a, a prism. I will, you know, maybe I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, entrepreneur, whatever. HR is a prism for creating positive impact at scale. And positive impact sounds very fluffy and, and, you know, funny like a Furby, but just in my case, with all the other experiences that I've had, you know, writing, coaching, consulting, building strategic HR functions, it's a way to see, look, how do we build or rebuild or, you know, change an organization so that people are, if we have the right people in the right place with the right context, incentives, and projects, and we get the best out of those people because they want to be there, not because we're forcing them or we're, you know, throwing money at them or candy or foosball or whatever, right? So that's that's the magic. It's, it's both an art and it's a science. And what I've seen through all my experience is that for whatever reason, I'm meant to be in HR, so that I can I can try to move those gears that are stuck. So that's that's a bit of my journey. And what a journey it is. I mean, you did you did not pick the easy route. I tell you that neuroscience to law to starting with all these startups, and then wow, very very impressive. Well, yeah, you mentioned sort of startups and I guess kind of fast growth companies. I wonder, do you see are there like pitfalls that can be avoided? Do you see the same things come up again and again? Yeah, the patterns are staggering um, in in the sense that a lot of tech entrepreneurs have um, two two forces going. On the one hand, they're great optimists because otherwise they just wouldn't stay around very long. Um, and on the other hand, they're often they drunk too much Kool Aid in the sense that, well, I'm building a tech company. Tech will solve you know all problems or most problems, and you know HR is this like four letter word this. You know, thing, this pile, I don't really want it. <laughs> I know I'll have to hire it at some point, but ugh, I don't want to touch this stuff, right? So there's there's almost like a visceral fear, disgust, 
you know, something very not positive around this subject. And it's been maybe rebranded. Some people call it people ops and, you know, rah, 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 let's basically throw all of this other stuff on HR and set them up even more to fail because, you know, that sounds like a good idea. And again, it's mostly women, people of color. They don't usually complain. They just sort of like grin and bear it. So I call HR the, the Cinderella of the corporate world. Right. So during COVID, we, we've, oh, we got our seat at the table. We also got five times more responsibilities. You know, we're, we're everything from a, a therapist to, you know, we have to deal with uh, finance and compliance and we have to motivate people and do it remotely and then work with no budget, no voice. You know, we don't buy the stuff that we use. I mean, awful stuff, right? So we kind of had this moment where, oh, wow, look, we're, we're, we're emerging. We're going to be, you know, we're going to get the, the show at midnight. And then it falls apart, right? That we have, I don't know, war in Ukraine, now we're in Israel. So it, it's always something. And that's that's unfortunately what HR goes through again and again and again. We sort of like, we, all, we almost get there and then everything crashes. Would your number one advice for leaders to get them to think about HR strategically rather than just focus their time on delivery of the product, delivery of the service. Do you have any advice for them as to this, a starting point? It's a big subject. And of course, different entrepreneurs will have completely different entry points to the subject. Um, again, the vast majority of HR, I'm sorry, the vast majority of entrepreneurs have zero, absolutely zero experience with HR. You know, like maybe they hired someone to most of all. Congratulations. Right? Maybe they worked in a company that's progressive in its people ops, and maybe they had coaching of some sort. So there might be some residue from some past experience. You know, maybe they worked at uh, Meta, Apple, something like that. But when you're, you know, in in the driver's seat of building a company, and you know, flying by the seat of your pants, building your wings on the way down, you know, that proverbial stuff. Um, the best thing I can advise is don't try to make up for a people function sometime down the road. It's a massive mistake that I see many, many entrepreneurs make again and again and again. And it's like, I get a call usually when it's a dumpster fire, right? Either people are leaving like rats off a ship or people are really unhappy with their compensation, with, you know, the performance reviews because nobody has the time for that. We're all busy, 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 right? So that's the biggest thing. You cannot ignore the people side of your business and not only don't ignore it, build it into your business from the start. This is a big deal. It's not just about your freaking OKRs. It's it's a lot more important. If you don't have any idea who your people are that are working for you, you have no idea what motivates them. If you have no idea how they actually feel about you, maybe they hate your guts, right? What do you what do you do? You have to start much much earlier than you think. That doesn't mean you hire a you know five person HR team, but at least hire someone, some sort of I don't know consultant, fractional CHRO. I don't know someone who can build the function for you can sit with your people, understand their needs, structure incentives the right way, put in, yes, the right system. Systems won't save your business by themselves. You need a mastermind, you need someone to understand your short business. But in the end, you need that bridge. You cannot jump over a chasm from 
There's no one who does this. It's the office manager, the receptionist, who would also, you know, let's give her HR also. What? Right? So in, in that situation, you need the bridge. So the bridge may be something that you think about very early. You build it into the design of your company. You structure sessions regularly with your people into your business strategy. When you hire people, you connect your hiring plan to your finances, right? To your financial model. You know, you you do things in a very thoughtful way early on. That is when you set yourself up for success so that, you know, if someone leaves and it's a key person, you might have a succession plan. Wow, right? So things like that, they, they may seem obvious in retrospect, but most entrepreneurs simply fail to think about the subject. They've never worked in HR. They don't really... They, they just think, you know, yeah, best thing since sliced bread. This is the coolest thing ever. Like, that's not enough, buddy. People are humans. They got families. They've got obligations. They have their own career to think about. So no one cares about your Kool-Aid, buddy, right? You're the only one because you're the one who has the equity. And I think that's really good advice as well to get that in there early and start thinking about it before people are on fire. <laughs> Almost flipping it, we talked about entrepreneurs and advice to them. When HR is out of sync with the wider business or when it isn't working well what typically happens and also what advice would you give to someone maybe starting out in HR or mid-level HR wanting to level up great question so a lot of the time unfortunately this is the case right HR is is a bit out of context meaning a lot of information may not be shared with them and this is again by whether it's by design or it's by coincidence or whatever HR is not seen as strategic and, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Well, they don't really get us like whatever. And they just like throw them, throw them this stuff and like get it out of here. So again, when you, when you set up that vicious cycle, you, you have HR that does not really for just in a very, very simple sense. If you profess to have values above your door and in your employee handbook and you all live those values because you treat your HR people like crap and because you know they don't understand something, you have no time for that, they're back office. How do you expect them to be your ambassadors to everyone else? I mean, that's completely, that's ludicrous. If you don't treat people a certain way that you say you treat people and you expect them to expect those values, it's, it's doomed to fail. And in fact, that's exactly what often happens. HR is seen as this kind of like, just just take care of it, like just get out of here. It's a nuisance. So when people feel like they're a nuisance, they're not going to speak up. They're sure as hell not going to bring you lots of solutions to your problems because they feel like, well, I just, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. So if you're HR in any form, you have to, you know, I, I don't mean to sound silly, but it's, you almost have to be not a revolutionary, but you have to be someone who speaks up because you can't, you, you physically, you know, that is going to bother you. It's going to kind of burrow into your mind. It's going to mess up your work. It's going to mess up your career. You have to speak up. And it, it doesn't matter, you know, man, woman, you know, whatever color background, that's not the point. Whatever background you're from, you have to assert your rights essentially, because HR is, is not known for that. So when you're the one to do that, or do it as a group, then you're a lot more likely to maybe get the budget, get the voice, right? To have 
some part of the decision-making process given to you. So that's, that's how you can start turning that vicious cycle into a virtuous one. You have to speak up. You have to have some idea how a business works. You know, maybe you have design thinking, maybe you have, you know, a product background. There are a lot more people now going into HR from completely different places within a business. And I think that's a great thing, but it takes time and it's still a four letter word. That kind of, that all makes sense as well. I'll kind of be talking about it from both point of views, but it kind of the message is still the same. Look, kind of communicate. Let's you know, let's make this important. Let's get the information that we need to start an HR strategy. Kind of moving on to something ever so slightly different. I mean, you've written and spoken a lot on winning the war with millennial talent. I'm wondering, are there insights that you can you can share with us on why managing and cultivating millennial talent is is different than other groups who cares about millennials anymore no i'm joking <laughs> it's more all about gen z now um i don't know i think uh the formula is very simple when i did research for my book what millennials really want from work and life this is about 2018 um Again, keep in mind, long before COVID, you know, millennials were just starting to become the kind of majority uh, demographic in the workplace. So this was a hotter subject. But the, the point is like this. It's not really about whether each generation is somehow different from every other one. That premise, you know, it, it attracted a lot of eyeballs. It became a cottage industry, you know, let's blame millennials for everything, you know, They've, they've ruined rental cars. They've ruined this and that. And it's like, this is garbage, right? So I, I did research. I got I got sick and tired of it, not because I care about being a, an older millennial or something else. Just like, is this real or not? No. The bottom line is that when I looked into the numbers, average tenure of millennials at that point in their career was exactly the same as, as boomers and Gen Xers. Um, so the whole flaky thing and all of that, undependable. The only difference about millennials is that we learned, we, we gained a voice, meaning we kind of stopped hiding things and internalizing things like, look, either you give us what we need or we're not going to work for you or we're not, you know, we're, or, or we're going to be happy. We're going to, you know, sort of silently quit or whatever. I hate these terms, but you get the idea, right? So millennials maybe have been the first generation that really started speaking up about a lot of things that everyone else was thinking at that same stage in their journey, whether Gen X or Moors. So that's why we were tagged as this kind of, you know, complaining and then flaky and whatever. But the same dynamics apply to millennials at the same stages of our career as everyone else. Yes, now we have COVID and we were going through war and all that stuff. But you know, there's a swing toward remote work. Now there's a swing toward back in the office. It's all very simple. It's who has the power in the dynamic, and that's that's the companies, right? So some portion have to do remote or they can do remote more easily. Maybe you're in banking, in law, whatever, no luck. Either you come back to the office or don't, don't bother working. On that, do you think that working with the different workforces, as in like boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, are there different ways of communicating, working with all of these workforces, or is it really kind of the same throughout? No, there's no doubt. Of course, of course, they are different, but that's also attributable in large part to different stage in life. You know, if you're just starting out in a job, you probably don't 
have, I don't know, a spouse, kids, mortgage. It's just, that that's the age bracket, right? So if you're later on, if you're, I don't know, a millennial, you're much more likely to have, yeah, a spouse, kids, a house with a mortgage in the suburbs, right? So it's just different things for every stage in, in life. Gen Xers, you know, they have maybe, I don't know, still a kid in high school. Like my, my sister has, uh, you know, an older older kid who's finishing up college soon. And the younger one is just starting high school. So a lot of these things are completely banal and, you know, we're, we're just hurling these terms and, and this and that, but it's it just makes for, for copy. It's not real. There's There's nothing that's really fundamentally different. It's just... You know, I happen to be an older millennial, yes, with kids, a house, and whatever. But you know, someone who's a younger colleague was in Gen, you know, Gen Z, maybe didn't have um, that formative experience at work the first two, three years because of COVID, right? So they they're they're at a stage of life where they want to run to the office, they want to be by the water cooler, they want to learn about politics, and of course, God bless, you should go learn that because that's a big deal for your career, right? But I don't think any of these things are are somehow terribly unique and you know this is a one one once in a lifetime unicorn no this is just stage in life of what it means if, if hr is thinking about this in in this kind of very basic way meaning there's human nature there's stage in life things should not be that complicated you don't need to make it more difficult than it is just address people where they are at their level what do they need in life get them the right benefits, get them the right incentives, coach them, you know, put them in the right place with the right team on the right project and, and go. Great results should happen. Yeah, I think, I mean, exactly. Meet people where they are now. Don't, you know, assume just because this, 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 then obviously this, this, this. I kind of very much agree with what you said. It's very important. And it's important to, to know what's hype and to know what's just there to generate content or a discussion point and actually what are the action yeah. points there. Like, who are the agenda? And you'll get to the human. Thinking about talent and attracting talent into your company, how important is overall brand recognition versus an employer brand? I mean, should HR leaders kind of, should they be thinking about these things as the same thing or things that need to be, need to have different approaches? A few threads here uh, to pick apart. So, um, I think employer brand is not just what th someone throws up on Glassdoor or Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, it's it's also reputation in forums, right? What do people say on Reddit or what do they say on Fishbowl or what do they say in uh, colleges, right? Where this company may recruit. So the word on the street is often a lot more relevant than whatever marketing copy, right? Because we, we know that people are very savvy. There's you know, so many sources of information now anonymous, open, et cetera. So uh, when you get to a certain point, most people are very sophisticated. What does this mean? It means that we're in the stage of the cycle where, you know, that authenticity, uh, you know, give me real content, show me what real people look like working there. You know, what do they say? People can very quickly smell if it's something for marketing rather than, you know, storytelling. So in that sense, I think we're, we're in a place now Right now, it, it's, you know, we went through this piece where I am my work, you know, it's all about the mission and, and well, and then at a certain point after the remote work thing kind of wore off and okay, 
a recession or something close to it, people realize, employees realize that, okay, the power is back with the employers. In that situation, again, it's just, it's a, it's a typical part of the economic cycle where people say, ah, you know what, a lot of layoffs, I'm going to go to business school. Or, you know what, I'm going to stay in a safer job at a larger company and, and they you know, grow their illusions until they're fired. So the point, the point is that the brand is is not something that is solely your presence online and whatever you post. It's what do people associate with your company, right? And, and out out there in the real world where the people talk and they say, ah, you know what, my cousin worked there and he said it's absolute hell. No way am I going to work there, even if it has a 4.7 Glassdoor score. And because that's that's what matters. It's going to be that personal connection, that personal reference, something more than just I found it on a website from some random person. So this is, this is where the rubber hits the road. And I think in some ways it's a good thing, meaning companies have made a lot of progress in, you know, a lot of companies, obviously not all of them made a lot of progress in in showing the real thing inside or at least doing their best and you know now we're back we're going in the other direction where because of recession because of war because of other forces there's more power with the company so we're we're back toward like well i get what those people are saying but i need a i need an internship i need a job i need a salary i need stability and that's that's maybe a little bit more of that Gen Z feel. But again, who cares about Gen Z or millennial? This is just an economic cycle. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I guess last long question for me, and I think we've got a sense of it from our conversation, but what are the big kind of misconceptions or myths about leadership in HR that you've encountered in your career and how do you go about debunking them? Yeah, so I think we've gone, um, we've gone at this from a couple angles. Um, HR does not need to be a four-letter word. It does not need to be completely tactical versus strategic. It doesn't need to be the enemy of business. In fact, that's total nonsense to even think that that is always the case. It's based on historical reasons and, and pop culture. I think a lot of people just have completely the wrong idea of what HR is and what it should be. Again, it devolves into this vicious cycle. Um, you know... What what do we do to to make it to make it better to empower HR to to make it more of a leader than a laggard? You know, I think that HR people need to first of all hire more diverse, not in the sense of different backgrounds and and, and colors. I don't mean that. I mean different backgrounds professionally, right? You have certain threads now where uh, people are coming to HR from. A product or finance or something else, right? Which which even five to ten years ago was unheard of. This is a backwater. Are you crazy? You can't go into HR, right? So we we have a lot more design thinking, and you know it has plus minus 
some some good things, some not such good things. Um, I think part of this is just recognizing the historical problems with HR. And yes, again, it's mostly women and people of color, not empowered with a budget or a voice. We have to change that. And the only way it's going to happen is not that, you know, someone says, oh, it's HR day, it's a Hallmark holiday. Who cares, right? HR people, we ourselves, we have to stand up and say, look, we're we have a critical voice. We have a critical role to play in a company's success. You know, maybe it means we do a little bit better job of describing the value, the ROI, the whatever of our work. Okay, we're connecting how people do and how much they produce in their work to what incentives we give them, what conditions we give them through their benefits, compensation, coaching, whatever. When we make that better case, or maybe when more HR people are entrepreneurs themselves and they have to go through the rigor of building a business, we're going to get to a place where HR has a better name. If you look at HR people in terms of tech layoffs over the last two years, it's by far the biggest contingent. More than 30% of all layoffs are in HR and talent acquisition, okay? which to HR people seems total anathema. You're you're throwing us out the door, even though you know you're going to need to hire right after your next fundraise or you know, whatever. So this is how it is. You have a lot of HR people that are unemployed, underemployed, misaligned. Again, they're they're boiling inside, but they, they can't speak. They can't speak up. So we have a perfect recipe for let's empower these people, these HR people, to start their own businesses, find other revenue streams, help them to build something outside of their day job. Because often again, because there are women, people of color supporting a larger family, they are a lot more dependent on that single income source. And so let's let's tease this apart, understand how we can empower these people who are great people, right? Make them stronger so that in their day job, they can demand more as they damn well should. I cannot do my job using these systems if I don't even get to decide which systems. If I don't have a dedicated budget, I don't have a staff, you're asking me to do five times more than I can possibly handle on my own without hiring someone to help me. No, absolutely not. I will not just sit and grin and bear it anymore. Right? So that's that's when we start kind of turning turning this vicious cycle in the right direction. That's a big part of my mission. It's a big part of what I'm working on. I think it very much is kind of almost accomplishes empower others to empower others. Kind of you need them to feel valued in order to make other people feel valued in the company. And from then you just keep growing. Water plot effect. Yep. It's not rocket science. That's that's kind of bringing everything back very neatly, right? So if HR is a prism for positive impact, Again, it's an undervalued property. Nobody wants to touch it's it's never on the top 10 priority list unless it's a dumpster fire. Okay. It's it's never going to be so that one day all the business owners wake up and say, oh, we've, you know, so sorry, we have to empower each other. No, it's, it's gotta be homegrown. Okay. And when when that happens, we're going to see a sea change. For me, looking at how important work is for nearly everybody in the working world, right? We spend a third of our day there. We spend decades usually in the workforce and even longer because longer life expectancy and 
economic factors. So if we don't look at it as this, like, you know, um, just uh, storm and drum, right? As we, as we say in German, right? It, it doesn't have to be this, this massive struggle, but instead, if we really use it as a prism for positive impact, imagine how many, you know, how, what, what kind of multiplier effect that might have on people's alignment. They, they're more likely to do work that they love. They are more likely to be in the right place at the right time with the right people, the right project. They might have a better chance to grow their career, make more money, make a life and family for themselves. Okay, imagine what a multiplier effect that has. Even in the Western world, which is very developed and all of that, there are massive inequalities. Right? So that alone is a great reason to focus on HR as this, you know, it, it's a very important key to the puzzle. But most people don't really see it that way. I do, for whatever reason. Very well said. And I think that rounds off very, very nicely. We kind of also want to know a little bit about you. So you've got a few quick fire questions. Jumping straight into it. Question number one. If you could compare yourself with any animal, which would it be and why? Um, great question. I don't know. Probably uh, probably some kind of deer. Some kind of Thompson's gazelle or something. And how come? Well, got to move fast. That's number one, right? The, the speed of business. Also, just the way, the way that I think a lot of it is kind of jumping between disciplines and networks and people and all of that. And you have to have a hard head, right? Because you're going to come come upon a lot of opposition, and a lot of people will try to hunt you down, and all of that. And you have to you have to kind of keep uh, keep smart about where you hang out and with, with whom, and all of that, right? Don't get distracted. So I think a gazelle is 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 not a bad analogy for what I have to do in the HR world, because it's often you know I'm not I'm not uh, acting as a lion. Right? Because maybe I don't own the business, I just consult the business. And you know, the agility is the key piece. You have to run with what you have, whether it's shifting moods or you know, different people's uh, situations. So I think that's not a bad one. Oh, I've never heard that one before, but I absolutely love it. I know. It makes sense. When you, you picture it, you go, okay, nice. Question number two. If you were a benevolent dictator, what would be the first thing that you would do or the first order that you would give? The next question. So what do you think is overhyped right now? And is there anything that you think is interesting that isn't being picked up by the mainstream? We can go in a lot of directions here, but I would say, um, AI, you know, I don't want to say all of AI, but let's say AI and HR. I think there's tremendous value in what AI not just can do, but does do already in HR, meaning you know, create an employee handbook based on law and boom, you have it right there, right? So what it means is that a lot of the very tactical, basic, you know, not, not terribly interesting things really can be outsourced to ChatGPT and it's beautiful. It's wonderful, right? Um, on the other hand, I think that we once again have this over-reliance on technology when it comes to dealing with humans. Um, you know, you have lots of products now where it's an AI-driven coach and yeah, for 80 to 90% of all career-related questions, even business-related questions, you probably can have a pretty decent response, right, from a lot of these AI-driven robots. I mean, AI can help you tailor a, a custom learning and development strategy, all this stuff, right? But what AI cannot do in the end, and this sounds terribly banal, I realize that, 
you still cannot use AI, at least yet, to really listen to a person, really get get to the deep part, because that's still something that you got to do as a human. You got to sit down with someone and you have to use nonverbal cues, right? That's 80% of communication. So my point is like this, you know, AI can read facial expressions. AI can detect voice inflections. AI can do lots of great things, but at least for now, it cannot combine all of those things, except perhaps in, in some intelligence context, which is another another point. Out in the out in the working world, AI for now is not able to read humans or give us really the right path to follow when dealing with them. Doesn't mean there are no patterns and we can can get the right answer, but it does take discretion and you know decency and humanity to really get to the root of a lot of problems, which are not business problems at all. So for now, I'm still bullish on let's let's be humans and not forget that part. Very, very well said. I guess the last question from us, and it's a question that we ask everyone, on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Nah. <laughs> we can go really weird or we can go not as not as weird. I would say like this, um, maybe seven. Seven is a very bland number. But what it means in practice is that, you know, given my background, I've worked in how many, eight careers now. I've, you know, been an immigrant twice. Married someone from a different culture, uh, language, etc. You know, trying to lots of different worlds, even in my daily life. Um, that can make for a lot of cognitive dissonance. But I've learned over the years not to attach too much meaning to wow. You know, I've been called weird, God knows how many times. Like not as much in the last few years because I'm a family man. I've tried to do my best, you know, to reflect that, but also to really understand what all of these different experiences mean for life philosophy and what what I meant to sort of transmit to the world through my particular vessel. So I don't know if that necessarily makes me weird or strange, but I don't really care. <laughs> that's the truth. It is what it is. And hopefully it helps a lot of people. That's That's my main concern. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for your time, your insights. I enjoyed this conversation. I certainly learned a lot. Thank you. Listen, it's not everybody that asks about HR number one or, you know, has has the patience to to really hear it through. I think there's again, there's a lot more here than meets the eye. And I really believe very strongly, again, this is a huge part of my work and why I'm in this field right now. Um, I believe that it's a massively undervalued property and a lot more energy and time should be invested in making it more not just scientific, but also bringing the science and art of it together for HR itself, not just the people it affects. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast no matter your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.